Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. Persistent air leak is an infrequent complication seen in the ICU. Appropriate ventilation strategies are important, but some require bronchoscopic intervention. Michael Putt is a dual trained respiratory and intensive care physician based at the Royal Brisbane Hospital in Australia, and he joins me to chat about some of the available options. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Looking forward to it. Michael, in broad brushstrokes, what are the overall uh, management strategies for patients who have persistent air leaks? Yeah, no, it's a good question because it can be a very difficult um, clinical situation to manage. So I suppose it, it, it's you, you could break that up into a number of facets and, and one would obviously, the first thing would be um, treating, treating the underlying cause of the fistula in the first place. So if it's, you know, necrotizing pneumonia, obviously, um, targeting the right antibiotics to the right organism, um, and uh, or if it's a, um, a persistent air leak in the setting of um, spontaneous pneumothorax secondary to COPD, for an example, you would do all your usual treatment for COPD management. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing would be um, uh, the, the the ICC management itself. So. Um, oftentimes the air leak is so, so substantial it sort of outstrips the size of the tube you've put in there. So that usually requires either a second ICC or a bigger ICC. And that's often the, the, the mantra from the surgeons when you ask them to be involved. It's got to be a bigger tube or a second tube, which is usually correct. Um, and then the, the use of suction is always a bit controversial, so it may actually help to try and get the lung reinflated and opposed to the, the parietal pleura, but oftentimes it may just keep the hole open and make your leak worse. So I'm not sure you can predict which way it goes when you use suction. So, the again, the surgical mantra is always a trial of suction once you've got good um, ICCs placed. And then the third thing is probably your ventilation. So if they're mechanically ventilated, then you really have to... Um, uh, you know, set up your ventilator to try and reduce the amount of air flowing through the fistula. Um, and that is really based on trying to reduce your mean airway pressure, which is the driver across the fistula in that setting. Um, so um, you usually try and use low levels of PEEP, um, short inspiratory times, long expiratory times, and trying to get them spontaneously breathing if you possibly can. Uh, and, and use um, all of your um, techniques really to reduce their mean airway pressure. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the literature about doing fancy things like putting peep valves on the end of the ICC and all this sort of stuff, but I don't think you really see that stuff done anymore. Uh, other things you can possibly do is independently ventilate each lung differently. So <laughs> if you want to uh, get a double lumen tube and put... Um, two different ventilators on each side. People have described that in the literature in the past. Um, or isolating just one lung if you want to just completely take the fistulous lung out of um, commission. But obviously, if you've got underlying lung disease, that's going to be very difficult to manage from an oxygenation ventilation point of view. Um, I think in those really difficult situations, you probably need to involve the surgeons to see if there's a surgical option to fix it. Um, and uh, in my experience, if it's if it's secondary to things like necrotizing pneumonia and stuff, it's very difficult for the surgeons to fix that. 
if it's post-surgical resection, they obviously will be involved to potentially fix a more proximal defect. Um, but, yeah, I think in, in that situation, if you're having trouble uh, with most of your tidal volume coming out the underwater seal drain, then you've really got to be looking for other techniques, and that's potentially where bronchoscopy comes into it. What are some of the techniques that can be used to uh, influence or, or change the outcome of persistent air leak? Yeah, Todd, excellent question. Um, fortunately, it's it's not a common occurrence that we get an air leak that is difficult to manage. But uh, as as I'm sure you're aware, when it when it does happen, it can lead to quite difficult uh, issues with ventilation, oxygenation, and carbon dioxide clearance. Um, so I think the advantage of the bronchoscopic techniques are that um, one, you don't there's no requirement for the patient to go to theatre. Uh, and leave the unit. And oftentimes, if, if it's a significant air leak, then you've usually exhausted all of your standard management with, with multiple chest drains and suction and things. Uh, and um, they're often quite fragile to move anyway. Um, and often in that context, it's not a air leak post a surgical procedure. It's usually a medical-related issue um, with a leak out of the alveolus. So it's uh, bron bronchoscopy, I think, offers a lot of advantages in those patients. Um, the, the most common stuff uh, techniques used nowadays would be the, the endobronchial valves. Um, and they're quite nice um, uh, procedures to do, really, because they can be done at the bedside via a flexible bronchoscopy. And, um, and provided you don't have a lot of issues with collateral ventilation, um, you can usually find the culprit segment or subsegment and then use any number of uh, valves to try and um, reduce the air leak. There's, there's hundreds of techniques in the literature from, from um, inserting various things uh, and also using things like uh, glue adhesives and a few other things like alcohol and things as sclerosing agents to try and block segments and subsegments. But I think Endobronchial valves are probably taken over from um, most of those old um, described sort of case reports in the literature nowadays, I would think. Michael, how do you go about isolating the specific segment of the lung that you're going to try and block? Look, depending on how big the air leak that is, that can be quite um, um, difficult. So essentially you just use a balloon catheter like a um, like a Fogarty's catheter, and you just go into each subsegment, blow the blow the balloon up to isolate that segment, and just assess the effect on the air leak. The trouble is, you might you might be leaking from a number of subsegments, um, which means you you have to progressively go more proximally in the airway um, and blow the balloon up to see when the when you know the biggest effect on the on the actual air leak via the underwater seal drain. And that may necessitate putting in multiple valves in multiple subsegments. Um, uh, that's uh, obviously an issue because they're not cheap, uh, and you're using them off-label as well. So they're only really indicated for um, lung volume reduction in in COPD is what they were invented for. Um, and I've certainly sent a case down to the Royal Brisbane from the sunny coast many years ago, which required. Um, five valves to be inserted to stop the air leak and even then it was a bit of a struggle to 
to actually stop the air leaking. And that and that may be, again, a marker of this collateral ventilation through the lobes and you can't actually isolate it. So that can be a bit of a problem. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, collateral ventilation? It's a concept that some people might not be familiar with. So everyone would remember it probably from, uh, from medical school and physiology days um, that, you know, there is those little pores of cone that, um, that connect alveoli with collateral ventilation. Um, when we're talking about it in the context of the valves and, and particularly when they're used in the COPD patient, is that you're, you're really trying to isolate um, uh, one lobe with the valves to try and get some lung volume reduction. And because the valves work in a one-way fashion, so um, air can come out but can't go in, you're essentially looking to collapse that lobe when you use them in COPD. So it, it, you, you need to assess for collateral ventilation and you can do this a number of ways. You can do it radiologically on a, on a CT scan with specific software. So what you're looking for is that the actual fissures between the lobes are intact on a CT. And uh, companies have um, invented specific software where you can load the CT into and they can give you an idea of how intact the fissure is. Um, and that's the first step. And you can actually see it sometimes where you see the fissure just disappears on a CT scan, so it's it's not totally intact. Um, and then you can also assess it with specific um, uh, technique at the time of valve insertion where you where you block off the segment in within the lobe and you can measure flow and pressure to see that the flow goes down to zero, and that suggests there's no collateral ventilation beyond. The segment you're blocking. So that's also done at the time of bronchoscopy pre-insertion of the valves. Um, and that's also been described as a technique to use in persistent air leak as well. So the thought is if you've got collateral ventilation, even if you put the valve in, you may not actually achieve what you're wanting to achieve, both in the COPD cohort and the persistent air leak patient. Michael, can you tell us a little bit about these valves, what they're made of and how they work? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of um, valve systems available on the market. Um, one's made by the Olympus company and one's made by a company called Pulmonics and they're slightly different in their, um, in their makeup physically. Um, but essentially they're both made of nitinol, which is a, an amazing um, alloy which um, allows you to essentially completely deform the valve uh, and squash it essentially so it's able to be inserted via the um, very small working channel of the bronchoscope. And once you've released it into the, um, into the airway, the, the component nitinol, when it heats up to, room t uh, to body temperature, essentially completely goes back to its original form. So lot, lots of medical things are now made of nitinol due to that, uh, that exact property where whereby when they, when they get to that temperature, they reform into the valve and they stay in that, um, in that form, snugly fitted into the, um, the subsegment of the airway. So they're quite amazing. Um, and they just have, both of them just have a one-way valve mechanism which allows air to be expired from the peripheral um, alveoli and airways and they close in inspiration so it stops any air going down that segment. So... Um, in air leak, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
So it essentially allows the defect in the peripheral alveolus or airway to heal without trying to reduce the amount of air going through the defect. And in COPD, it essentially just causes collapse of that distal segment um, for lung volume reduction. Are there any long-term consequences for this? Does that area of, um, of lung ultimately continue to be underventilated or are there ways of retrieving these devices once they've been inserted? Yeah, so they're definitely retrievable. Um, and in the setting of air leak, once the air leak stopped, um, they should be retrieved because um, hopefully the defect is now healed, uh, the persistent air leak has disappeared and the patient has recovered. So they should be taken out in that setting. And they're quite easily retrieved via bronchoscopy with a little forceps mechanism. You just grab onto them and essentially pull them out. Um, the longer they've been there with more granulation tissue, that can be a little bit more difficult, but still definitely doable. Uh, in the setting of COPD, if, if they work and the patient gets benefit from them and they don't have any complications, they're usually um, uh, left there. But the complications usually that require them being removed is one, they haven't worked and the patient hasn't got any benefit and they haven't actually got low bar collapse. Uh, the other issue is if you get sort of post-obstructive infection or post-obstructive pneumonia, which for obvious reasons is a potential complication, um, they're often removed in that setting as well. What is the evidence currently telling us about how effective they are? Um, in, in COPD, if we if we focus on the original indication, they are they are a palliative procedure for breathlessness, um, and they really came about because of the high morbidity and mortality associated with lung volume reduction surgery. So there was a landmark trial a number of years ago showed that, that in specific in specific patient groups, lung volume reduction surgery was quite useful. But in, in the higher risk groups, it was actually associated with significant sort of operative mortality. So it, it's become a sort of less and less um, often nowadays, really. And um, the bronchoscopic lung volume reduction is, is obviously got significantly less morbidity associated with it. Um, and there's some fairly good evidence in, in the right patient group that you get improvement in functional capacity and breathlessness in that COPD group. Um, in persistent air leak, most, most of the literature is based around either case reports or case series, um, and most of it's in the non-critical care patient. So it's certainly an option to use, but, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of randomised controlled trial evidence really to guide us. But... Um, it's been used quite successfully uh, in persistent air leak in, in, in a lot of patients, both um, in ICU and out of ICU. So that, that's, that's where we're at at the moment, essentially from a, an evidence-based. Michael, in your practice, what are the indications for inserting uh, an endobronchial valve in a patient with persistent air leak? Look, I think it, it should definitely be uh, considered an option in 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 someone, say if we talk about patients on the wards, if, if they just have a persistent air leak despite, um, you know, good ICC management, um, often a trial of suction, um, and then the options really there if they're not an operative candidate is you can do some local stuff through the ICC, so either talc, attempted talc pleuridesis or what's called a blood patch, so a similar concept to a blood patch in a uh, CSF leak post a uh, spinal. 
Um, they have varying um, uh, success from, for both of those things. But in that setting, if, if the patient's able to undergo a bronchoscopy, then I think it's worth um, assessing them to see if an endobronchial valve is, is possible to be inserted, and we certainly do that at, at, at our institution. Um, in ICU, if you're having difficulty ventilating them and you've got persistent respiratory failure, um, and it's thought to be a uh, an air leak that's um, sort of distal and, and via the alveolus, then I think in that setting um, it should also be considered um, and at least assessed to see if um, blocking subsegments and segments can reduce the air leak because you're really stuck in that situation where um, surgery is probably going to be very difficult and high risk and may not help. Um, and if you're struggling to ventilate them and clear their CO2, then I think... Um, that that is a is an indication for assessment, and it's certainly been done in that setting at the Royal Brisbane and, and written up as a case report in the past. Michael, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslocommunity.com.